I need you to know, it's business which is causing global warming. It's business which will kill your children. The Sustainable Hour. For a green, clean, sustainable July. The Sustainable Hour. Welcome to the Sustainable Hour. We'd like to acknowledge that we're broadcasting from the land of the Wathaurong people. We pay tribute to the elders past, present, and those that earn that great honour in the future. We're broadcasting from stolen land, land that was never ceded, always was and always will be Aboriginal land. The oldest living culture on the planet, it thrived in often harsh conditions for millennia uh, and their main focus was on nurturing their land and their communities until that was all taken away from them violently. We can't hope to have any show of climate justice until we have justice for First Nations Australians. And a good way to start that process or to continue it, push it along, is to vote yes in the upcoming referendum for the voice because it's business i need you to know it's business which is causing global warming it's business which will kill your children it's business which is responsible for lethal humidity but it's policies which guide business you must hold us to account don't let us with our clever advertising blame you the consumer or you the public or individual that's rubbish business guided by government will either destroy or save this planet hold us to account the power of you thank you make us change that's all i'm asking you to do make us change thank you very much dr andrew forrest ao also known as twiggy the Australian businessman and chairman of Fortesque Metal Groups. Speaking here at an event that's known as Asia's Davos, which was held in China a few weeks ago. Speaking as an Australian businessman to the Chinese and to the Australian people. Hold them accountable. And what for? Well, for a start, this What We're Living is apparently now Earth's warmest year on record. 2023 is on track to be the world's hottest year on record, where temperatures are going to exceed this 1.5 degree above pre-industrial levels for the first time. Actually, both July and August this year was something like 1.6 degrees warmer than it used to be back before humans started burning coal and oil and gas. 1.6 degrees, that's way above those 1.5 degrees which the global community has been talking about since the Paris Agreement in 2016 that we should not exceed 1.5 degrees and now we're doing it and then what are we just going to be accepting that the ecosystems are beginning to collapse around us and the weather extremes and all the destruction and the killing of people the ice poles melting because it's too hard or what because if we look at what's going on here, the only reason all this is happening is because somebody is profiteering from it. 
somebody is making money and having a good lifestyle at the moment because they are in the business of selling all this coal, oil and gas and they want us to continue to buy it from them so that they can make some more money. That is what we need to talk about. It's up to us, not as individuals, but by coming together and forming alliances, etc. and letting those people who run for elections and so on, letting them know that we're not going to accept this. Colin Market, OAM, let's hear what's been happening around the world. Yeah, well, I'm glad you're talking about people with money, Mick, because our roundup begins in New Delhi, where the leaders of the world's richest nations met last week for the annual conference that they call the G20. G20 simply means the group of 20 richest nations in the world. Um, only this time there were fewer leaders than before. There was no Putin from Russia or Xi from China. And at the finish of the conference, the group, as usual, put out a joint statement. It was diplomatic in its language and it condemned the war between Russia and Ukraine without blaming anyone. Uh, and even mentioning that it was a war, come to think about it. And it said nothing at all about climate change. But then came an announcement from the European President Ursula von der Leyen, detailing an agreement that she had brokered at the meeting to open up a new trade route between India and Europe that she said would rival China's Belt and Road Initiative in its range and its vision. At its heart is a green initiative that would develop the manufacture and transport of green hydrogen and the laying of undersea data cables across the region. She described the agreement as nothing less than historic, saying that it will be the most direct connection to date between India, the Arabian Gulf and Europe. She added that this corridor is much more than a railway or a cable. It is a green and digital bridge between continents and civilizations. Basically, it's a railway that will um, take over from sea routes and make the transport of goods and services 40% faster at least throughout the, the route. It's mainly funded by US and Gulf states money. And its big hidden advantage is that it would make European states far less reliant on Russian oil, gas and coal. All of these would be replaced with clean, green hydrogen from states for like Turkey. So that was one good thing that came from the G20 amongst all of the uh, greenwashing that came from there too. Now to Hong Kong, where the torrential rain that hit their region last weekend caused extensive flooding. It turned streets into fast-flowing rivers, caused landslides in the surrounding hills, and completely inundated the city's underground railway system. The rainfall in Hong Kong was measured at 15.8 centimetres in one hour, the highest hourly rainfall since records began 140 years ago. The main island of Kowloon recorded more than 20 centimetres of rain in a single day. The region was hit by the tail of Typhoon Haikei, uh, which we warned about last week. It also brought torrential rain to the coast of China's Guangdong province. 
Hong Kong's damage is estimated to be in the billions of dollars, with the cleanup likely to take months rather than weeks. And yes, all the Bureau statements and scientific evidence squarely named climate change as the cause for all of this destruction. To the US, where festival goers were finally able to get away from the Burning Man Festival in the middle of the Nevada desert after being trapped there for two weeks by flooding rain. And this neatly highlighted the difference between rich and poor nations. This too was attributed to uh, by scientists to climate change. The floods, the flooding rain, turned the desert's barren clay soil to thick, clinging mud, which trapped many of the festival goers in their Winnebago's and luxury camper vans. It trapped them for two weeks beyond when they were expected to leave. The festival draws an estimated 100,000 rich and wacky Americans each year to an annual New Year event that's based around psychedelia and the, uh, the climax of each festival is the burning of a giant wooden effigy. One of the major attractions to the festival is that it's out of phone or social media contact with anybody else. And apparently the biggest hardships that were suffered by a week of wading through knee-deep clinging mud was that the tankers couldn't get through to empty the lines of portable toilets and uh, several essentials were missing from them, including the drug supply ran out. And I think I'll leave that one there. But it finished with, uh, I think it was an eight lane highway with Winnebago shoulder to shoulder going all the way there once they were finally released from the Burning Man Festival. Still in the US and a new study published in Science Magazine has found that a majority of the world's largest companies uh, their claims to be hitting environmental targets are either false or they're greenwashing. The study analysed environmental records from 100 of the world's biggest companies, and they found that 90% of their environmental projects failed to report a single outcome. 80% did not disclose how much money had been invested in restoration projects, and a third claimed to be restoring habitats, but didn't specify where, or where they were or when it occurred. If corporations want to live up to their environmental promises and avoid greenwashing allegations, the study's final statement reads, they should report their efforts centred around scientific principles that determine ecosystem restoration success. So what that really means is, is that the environmentalists are onto them and we can expect some change from the world's top 100 businesses. To the Arctic region and a new paper has revealed a direct link between climate change and the decline in numbers of polar bears. The paper was published by Professor Stephen Amstrup from the University of Wyoming. He's a lead author of a peer-reviewed paper published in the Science magazine. The paper revealed a direct link between greenhouse gas emissions and polar bear cub survival rates. Its computer-driven methodology measures the CO2 emissions from hundreds of power stations in the US and related this data 
to the thinning and disappearance of polar sea ice, and then calculated how that data affected the survival rate of healthy polar bear cubs. Professor Amstrup said that the same type of computer analysis could be adapted to measure the impact of climate change on other species that are listed as endangered. So, yeah, it really shows the extent of the width of climate change science is now improving in its width as well. And finally, you all know that I like to end each report on a positive note. Well, I simply couldn't find any this week. Even Forest Green Rovers lost both of its men's and women's matches. So instead, I'll finish with the statement from UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres when he opened the G20 summit last weekend. The climate crisis is spinning out of control, he told the world's leaders. It is worsening dramatically, but the collective response, this is from you, the collective response from you is lacking in ambition, credibility and urgency. He then urged the world's wealthiest nations to close down coal projects immediately and develop strategies to reach net zero emissions by 2040. Together, G20 countries are responsible for 80% of global emissions, he said. Half measures will not prevent a full climate breakdown. And that clear, stark warning from the UN leader to the world's richest nations leaders, including Australia, I might add, because Anthony Albanese was there. That ends my roundup for this week. Listen to our sustainable hour for the future. Our first guest today is. Sarah Hathaway. Sarah was recently elected to the City of Greater Geelong Council. Uh, Sarah, welcome. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Tony. Thanks for having me. Anything in particular that you want to talk about today? Yeah, I guess today I wanted to draw attention to a project that is being proposed for Lara, which is part of Windermere Ward or the ward that I represent out in the north. Um, which is a proposal for a waste-to-energy incinerator. Why is that an issue? There's a number of issues with it. Um, I guess starting from from the location, um, it's in very close proximity to residential housing. It's within 350 metres. Um, you know, there's, there's a whole lot of, uh, I guess, local-level issues in Lara, um, that we could just focus on and it would make this a bit of a, a NIMBY campaign. Um, but I guess the broader issue of this is the issue of waste energy incinerators generally and what this means for sustainability going forward where certainly all of the, the noises that we're hearing from local council, um, from state government are moves to reduce waste, to be more sustainable, to move towards a circular economy. Um, but meanwhile, across the state of Victoria, as far as I'm aware, there's five or six of these proposed energy to waste incinerators that would really just encourage um, the ongoing use of ge of generating waste and taking us backwards. I guess just to take the opportunity, speaking to you guys, my big concern in the environment or 
or climate sphere that we're all in um, is there's a lot of greenwashing going on of these energy-to-waste incinerators with the argument being that these are good things to have because they reduce landfill. So therefore it's green, it's sustainable, um, it's something that we should be going for. But um, certainly, that yeah, there's a lot of evidence to suggest um, the opposite, let alone, you know, without looking at all the health impacts and other impacts of these projects. It's given this nice soft title of um, waste to energy. Essentially, it's an incinerator that burns household waste, including mostly plastic, because we know that most of the waste that people create is plastic. And instead of um, burning it, which puts the toxins into the atmosphere, we should be recycling plastic, finding a way of recycling. It strikes me that we solve our plastic problem by, uh, first of all, we solved it by sending it off to China because they at least have got a way of recycling some of it and putting it into new products. And then when China said, enough, we've had enough, we can't handle any more of it, we then stockpiled the stuff and now we're saying we're going to burn it and create electricity from the flames because basically that's what they're doing. They Instead of a, a coal-fired energy creation, which is what we've got in the uh, in the, uh, Gippsland, uh, this will be a plastic-fired incinerator in the middle of a domestic situation. And they've given it this lovely title of waste to energy. It's... Uh, it's completely wrong. We shouldn't be burning the stuff. It's the worst thing you can do with it. What we really should be doing is not creating it in the first place. We should be putting pressure on the manufacturers and the supermarkets and all the places that where we gain this waste plastic from and saying, we will fine you if you keep on producing this bloody stuff, rather than saying we'll burn it at the end. It's It's a daft place that we're in now i know that's not a question that's just simply the correct thing to do no absolutely colin and i guess if i can add to that too i've been there's some very um hard-working lara residents that have been across all the detail of what the proponents have said through to the epa and certainly i i'm not an expert but it's been a sharp learning curve for me about these um waste energy incinerators is like and this is just how bizarre these things are so they 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 have been quite common in the eu where they run 24 7 24 hours a day um and it's gotten to the point in in some of these countries in europe where they ran out of waste and they were cutting down trees to feed the incinerators because they were under contract to keep these things running 24 7 a day um now residents are being told in lara that 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 isn't going to be a cause. They don't have to feed the beast um, 24 hours a day. But the actual business case of this project is saying that the incinerator is going to burn 400,000 tonnes of waste a year. Now, what we've we've looked at the data, the entirety of southwest Victoria does not produce 400,000 tonnes of waste a year. We produce 27% of that. So I guess the, the next concern is that if this project is going to go ahead. Well, where is that waste coming from? Are we shipping it into the bay? Are we trucking it in from interstate? Um, and then this problem of disincentivizing just spreads further and further. 
But isn't it already a done deal? Isn't it already more or less decided that this is going to happen? So, and what can the community actually do? Yeah, so absolutely not a done deal. Um, I think residents of Lara hoped it was the case because the proponent first popped up in 2021 um, with an application to EPA and then they disappeared um, and we thought we'd won it and they've come back again with a whole new application. Um, there's just been a round of um, community submissions or community feedback to the EPA um, and my understanding now is that that's all getting fed back to the Victorian Planning Minister and we're waiting for a decision at the end of September. So there's plenty to do in the interim. Um, Lara residents out every weekend with a petition which our Upper House member Sarah Mansfield has agreed to take into State Parliament. Um, that petition is online and, of course, I'll provide you the link to share with listeners. Um, and there's also going to be a community voice rally um, opposing this project on Saturday the 16th of September, 11am in Austin Park. And I'd really encourage anyone listening to this podcast, whether you live in Lara or live in the northern suburbs, you know, if you support the concepts of sustainability and protecting the climate, we really want everyone to show up to this rally. Belinda, you've got a question? Yeah, thanks, Tony. Thanks, Sarah, for um, telling us about this. We, um, I'm used to be living in Glen Ira in Melbourne southeast and a similar proposal came up for southeast and a whole bunch of councils have gotten together to put up such a proposal and it, there wasn't any even any consultation with the community when it went to Glen Ira council for a decision that we heard about it um our group and we sent out an email to our mailing list and people were up in arms about it you know particularly that you know that there would for this proposal, there was going to be an increased de demand for the feedstock, for an increased demand of waste. So instead of we're all trying to madly reduce our waste and they were going to require more and more waste every year. So uh, the community was up in arms about it and all contacted the councillors and they dropped it like a hot potato. It didn't go any further. further. So um, it would be great to um, lobby other councils and I think as a group we could lobby our council to... Um, support, you know, if this is a statewide um, proposition, it's just complete madness. So we shouldn't be considering things like that. As you, you talked about the circular economy, excuse me, that's the direction that we need to be going in. So um, support to you and the, the local community in Lara, it's, it's a really tough one to be fighting in an area like that. So um, reach out to your allies in other areas, particularly where there's bigger populations. I'll yeah. certainly put the word out to our group. Thank you. And if I can just give a quick shout out to the Dandenong community. Um, my understanding is they've currently got two of these um, incinerators on the cards within very close proximity of each other um, and within proximity of like a retirement village area. Um, so, yeah, there's quite a big campaign kicking off in Dandenong. So, yeah, it's really... Um, <laughs> We need that community pushback because I think if we're just going to be quite complacent, unfortunately, these projects will start slipping through. Yeah, it's not quite concern. It's got to be voiced in some way. Look, Sarah, I'm aware we have to move on because we have other guests, several of them, but please don't lose sight of the main thing, which is when they burn plastic, it puts toxins into the atmosphere. 
And that is the thing that we're fighting against for global warming. It creates the greenhouse effect that, you know, it's, it's, that's wrong from the very start. So just the whole idea of the thing of burning anything to create energy is wrong. We should be creating energy sustainably using solar or wind power at the moment in, in, in our particular area, certainly not by burning anything. And, and last of all, it should be plastic. And if you do the maths, this uh, 400,000 tons of burning will create something like 35 megawatts of, of energy per year. And that's the equivalent of putting up six wind turbines. So what do you want? Do you want to burn 400,000 tons of toxic plastic, as we talk about here, or put up six wind turbines? I'll take the six wind turbines, please. I can put it in my backyard too. I don't even mind. Yeah. <laughs> right with you on that one, Sarah. I think we all are. Terrific. All the best with it, Sarah. And like, as always, I'm sure that your position is strengthened if people contact you about it. And yeah. join, the, join the Lara group and, uh, yeah, let's let's stop this absolute insane project before it uh, it gets any breath at all. Yeah. And it does it does have a Facebook group as well, doesn't it? So you can just write Lara Incinerator in Facebook and it will come up and you can join that group as well. Again, numbers count. Absolutely. There's a big letter writing campaign going on. So by all means, write to me, but please write to all the other councillors as well and write to state government. And yep. the website for that is letitian.org. Not petition, but letitian.org. Our next guest is Lisa Deppler. So she's the facilitator for Ocean, which is this is my homework to learn this, uh, the Otway's Climate Emergency Action Network. So, Lisa, welcome to the Sustainable Air. You've got two, a mother and a baby whale behind you there. It looks magnificent. So why, why are whales so special to you? I think all the critters in the ocean are special to me. Um, Tony, I, I suppose I, I do concentrate on the whales because I think they're very important to people who live in Australia. And they're like the focal species, I suppose, for, for our campaign to stop seismic blasting in the Otway Basin. Seismic blasting, I like the sound of that. Is nah, it it's not good. As, is it as bad as what it sounds like? It's about as bonkers as burning your waste <laughs> to create energy. It's another one of those mad schemes. I feel like our government... Uh, is just going off the rails at the moment with mad proposals that, you know, genuinely have no social licence. And um, we've, I'm with Sarah. We've all got to push back really hard on this. And uh, it's a bit unfair that it all falls upon us, <laughs> but that's the way it is at the moment. Tell us what it is. What What is it and why is it such a problem? Uh, I reckon 99% of Australians don't know what seismic blasting is. It happens way offshore in our oceans and it's done by gas and oil exploration companies to find fossil fuels deep below the ocean floor. Now, they let off, they, to do that, they have a particular area that they've got a, um, a title or a permit to survey 
And to do that, they basically have a very large survey ship that jibes up and down in a grid fashion over that that title, that area that they have, letting a blast off every 10 seconds, 24 hours a day, often for months on end. The vibrations from those blasts go deep down below the ocean floor, kilometres, and they bounce back up to receivers that are being towed behind the ship, often 10 kilometres behind the ship. That's how how long these, these signals take to go so far down and back up again. And that tells the scientists on board, uh, gives them an idea of what reserves there are for them to tap into. Uh, the blasts are, on average, 250 decibels. Now, I know nothing about decibels, but apparently they're exponential. So um, I think uh, at the source of a jet engine is 120 decibels. But 250 decibels is not just another 100 decibels louder. It's it's hundreds of times louder, maybe thousands of times louder. It's louder than the Hiroshima bomb, and it's thousands of times louder than the loudest whale call in the ocean. So it has some real impact on marine life, um, all stages of marine life, all from whales down to zooplankton. And, and in particular with the whales, they, they rely on echolocation to find their way around. So what, what does it do to that? Uh, for whales, it's, um, it disrupts their breeding, their feeding and their migrations um, because communication is, is paramount for whales and they also use it to hunt for food as well. Um, so... A deaf whale is a dead whale, basically, and so is a hungry whale that's had all the zooplankton um, sort of wiped out where they might normally feed. Uh, they, there's been quite a few studies on whales. It definitely impacts them. So the seismic ships do a what they call a soft start to scare the whales away. You know, they build up the decibels to try and get them to move out of the area. But I've spoken to a marine biologist who actually worked once upon a time on seismic ships and she said they just get confused because the noise is behind the ship and sometimes they actually swim towards the ship. These ships are so far off the coast, we can't see them from the land. I believe a lot of these uh, gas and oil exploration companies, they're the cowboys of the sea. I don't think they're following the environmental plans and the limitations that they're meant to around whales anyway. So, um, you know, at the moment, Ocean is going, just been through a very long process of commenting on a 1,400-page environmental plan by TGS and Schlumberger to seismic blast 5.5 million hectares of the Otway Basin. It, it could be the best environmental plan in the world, but how it translates once it's out there to see, nobody can guarantee. In fact, uh, Schlumberger uh, seismic blasted in 2019 in the Otway Basin, and they are currently under criminal investigation. It's been referred to the DPP for their seismic blasting effort because it's been proven that they seismic blasted with uh, within the vicinity of 96 rare and endangered blue whales. So it's cowboy country out there and it's um, we're just trying to highlight that to everybody.
Mm. Now, you're, you're worried about the whales, and understandably so, but I, again, I would urge you not to lose sight of the fact that what you're essentially experiencing with this is underwater fracking. And the whole concept, the whole idea is to get gas and oil to burn and increase the greenhouse effect one way or the other. We should be looking for ways of creating energy sustainably and not try and get more oil and gas. Those industries are both declining. So why would you need to seek new sources? It just doesn't make any sense. And look, what I wanted to ask, though, Lisa, is there any research going on that would link this um, explosions under the sea with the, the numbers of whales that are beaching themselves? Um, I'm going to come at that first thing that you mentioned, Colin. Thank you. Um, the reason we address seismic blasting is because it is the very beginning of the exploration. If we can, if we can stop it at that point, we're stopping further mining of gas below the ocean floor. And secondly, where they're blasting is 200 kilometres off the coast and in five kilometres of water. We don't even really have the technology to be safely mining gas that far out. So this whole project, a bit like Sarah's project, is just bonkers. Um, look, there, there's a fantastic film that we showed here in Apollo Bay about the damage that seismic blasting does and the research, some research that has been done on how it impacts whales. Um, in Nova Scotia, they were blasting near pilot whales and had a massive beaching, and they actually cut off some of the heads and flew them off and had some research done. And, yes, damage had been done to the hearing of these pilot whales. But, look, there's not enough research about seismic blasting full stop, and that's because seismic ships are super expensive. Mostly, any real meaningful research that has been done has been sponsored by the gas and oil companies, allowing them to do that. And then if it is proven that there's some negative impact, you know, the way science is, then, then they look for weaknesses and disprove it. So this reminds me of the tobacco industry where it just took forever to prove the obvious that it was doing harm. And, you know, you're, you're pushing against some really, really big money here. <laughs> We've got a couple of other guests on today and uh, we'll bring them on now. Uh, we've got Belinda Hayden and Helen Lester from the Beyond Gas Network. So very much a gas theme today. <laughs> Helen, you, you've got a question there? Yes, I do. Uh, Lisa, love your work. You do amazing, amazing work down there. And I just wanted to mention uh, Marcus Knoll from your Fisherman's uh, Co-op down there. Um, you mentioned to me that um, a Geoscience Australia report, which uh, says that a Geoscience Australia report in 2022, which said that Australia has enough gas resources, both conventional and unconventional, to last for the next 40 years. So I'm finding it really, really hard why, you know, people are blasting and endangering our fishing industries and also, you know, the, the wildlife in the oceans when we already have enough. Uh, thanks for the question, Helen. Um, 
Yeah, it's bonkers. I know Marcus very well. Um, the Apollo Bay Fishermen's Co-op are, are really strong partners of Ocean and we work together heaps. Um, Geoscience Australia are a um, basically an authority of the government and, yes, they have said we have enough known gas reserves to last us beyond 2050 for both export and domestic. You know, God help us if we're burning gas by 2050. Um, yeah, it's crazy. I, I just sometimes feel like these big wheels just don't know how to turn off, you know, and uh, one, one excuse they're now throwing is that they're actually also seismic blasting the ocean to look for places for carbon capture and storage, and that's another greenwashing bullshit, you know. Um, you know, so... Yeah, I, I totally agree. It's it's madness, and I think um, I agree with Adam Bant. I think we need to get back on the streets and start, you know, um, saying that, uh, telling our government they just don't have the social license to be doing the mad things they're doing at the moment. Look, the true answer to you, Helen, is that they're doing it for profit. <laughs> There's no other reason. They're certainly not doing it for the planet or for the community. That yeah. We've said this a number of times. They've known for over 50 years the consequences of continuing to ply their toxic products. They've ignored it. Uh, I guess their argument for shareholders is we've got this these ships, we've got this equipment, so we've got to use it. But, I mean, the, the basic tenets of, of, uh, of economics is that if it, if it uh, you know, its time has it's served, it's used that using that in the past has been seen as being sensible economically but it no longer is or environmentally or, or any way and uh, they can't accept that they're not used to being told no yeah just around that there's been no research in the senate inquiry into seismic blasting in 2021 there was a strong recommendation that there needed to be more research that goes into uh, softer techniques you know, to survey the ocean floor. And there's been nothing done in that. It's it's like you say, it's not in their interests. They've spent big money on these big ships. And, you know, uh, I think at this late stage in the gas industry, they, they're certainly not looking to do anything better. There, There's a technique called vibrosis, and uh, which is much more gentle. But, yeah, they're not interested in doing that. So let's talk about what uh, people can do if if uh, we're upset about this and we want to stop it. I've noticed that on the 15th of September and actually also on the 17th, thousands of people around the world are coming together out in the streets to march against the fossil fuel industry. There's a hashtag end fossil fuels and that is a global event. It's including also the global climate strikes by the youth. And here in uh, Melbourne, there's going to be a rally for Wales not gas. That's uh, happening on the 15th of September at 4.30 at the Enterprise Park, Flinders Street in Melbourne. Yeah, I'll be there. I'm going to talk at that rally. Um, there's also some other events going on. It's a way off, so you've got plenty of time. Uh, the uh, Surfrider Foundation Australia are showing a film in Melbourne and I haven't got the location yet, but if anybody goes to um, ocean.org.au, there's plenty of information there where you can get further involved and give us a hand with this. 
This is cold. Don't be afraid. Don't be scared. At the heart of this conflict is a battle between truth and science and power and lies. Right. Belinda and Helen uh, kind of introduced you uh, preliminarily uh, a couple of minutes ago. Let's find out from you two about the Beyond Gas Network. I guess it's similar to, uh, it's a similar concern about gas being a fossil fuel. What what are the alternatives? Thanks, Tony. It's a good question. Uh, maybe before um, we talk about the alternatives, might just talk about why the Beyond Gas Network started, if that's Yes, good that's idea. Okay. Um, so it was during COVID. Um, it started when a few of the local in climate action groups got together in outrage at the then coalition's so gas-led recovery from COVID. And, you know, again, we just thought it was bonkers that the, the government, had, you know, when in, in a climate crisis where it was the first year of the pandemic and here's the government proposing that we have a, a recovery from the pandemic out of COVID and it was just the thing that made the least sense to all of us. So we got together um, and we put on a webinar which was called The Gas Fallacy. Um, and it was it was pretty well attended and we got some really great speakers. I, I'm sorry, I can't remember who was there, but we can put a link um, in the show notes to those to those um, those webinars. We've done a couple since. Um, the most recent one we did was last year with um, in conjunction with Ocean about the problem with seismic blasting and um, why we we shouldn't be needlessly harming ocean wildlife for gas that we don't need. It's complete madness. So it just does go to the extent of state capture that we have. I mean, there's just so much greed, but the government have a role to play here. They have a mandate with a climate election, but they're not doing anything. And, you know, if we didn't have the political donations going to this, into the system, then I'm sure none of these things would be happening. Anyway, so we're, the Beyond Gas Network so it started in the east and southeast of Melbourne or NAM we prefer to say, and we've reached out to other grassroots groups across the country. So we've now got, we're connected across Australia within um, all the states and territories. We're just, you know, forming some links with people in South Australia. And so what we like to do, we know that there is there is a core of us that are from the sort of inner city places and that there are groups in Northern Territory and Western Australia and Tasmania and the Otways, for example, Ocean, that have these really big environmental problems that they're facing, but they don't have necessarily the large communities to support that. So we like to support those groups and um, help to raise their voices. And we particularly love to um, focus on First Nations voices and support First Nations people and really hear from the front lines of the action of what's happening with those developments. Belinda, I have a, a related question, which has uh, been nagging at me for a little while. Uh, up until late last year, we had quite an issue here in Geelong because Viva Energy wanted to put a gas terminal at the end of the pier, which was essentially a moored gas tanker that would supply what they term natural gas, which is liquid petroleum gas, uh, 
yet it's gone ominously quiet. Would you be aware if that proposal is still a proposal or is it um, is it being worked on quietly and nobody's talking about it because we have a really, really poor media here in Geelong? I think, Colin, it's a really good point. We have a really poor media across the country that's just really not talking about the, the most important things. It's those with the loudest voices and those with the vested interests and the money that that get the coverage. I'm not across fever to date, you know. So we're a small group, you know, we're just like all of the other groups. And so it is really difficult for us to keep across all of all of the um, gas projects. There are so many across the country. You know, we're in a climate emergency. We're supposed to be progressing towards net zero emissions by 2045 and, you know, the different targets in each the respective states. But in every, I think in every state, there are, there are still gas projects being proposed. It, it's absolute madness and, and it's really difficult to keep up with it. So what we're trying to do is is focus on, um, I know, the, the ones that, that where there's critical decision points coming up and so on. So I'd love to come back to you, but I'd also consult with the Geelong group. I think it's Geelong Gas, not Renewable. Renewables, not gas. I can help with that. Viva have been asked to, yeah, in, in their development proposal, they've been uh, it's got went through community consultation, and there are a whole lot of issues that were raised, and then they were asked by the the particular uh, government department, Victorian government department, that gives permission to go into more detail on on the areas they were lacking, and that's currently, I guess, being produced that information. So it, it's, yeah, I guess that's why it's gone cold because they're, they're in the process of getting the required information. And in the meantime, there's another group, not all that far from Lara, actually, seeing we've used bonkers a fair bit today, uh, that's a similar proposal. So while the one in Geelong is being, the application is being processed, they've gone ahead, this other company has gone ahead with theirs. So there are two fossil fuel projects, floating gas hub projects. So we've already, as we keep saying, we've got a super saturated atmosphere with with carbon, and we want to we want to increase that. So, yeah, Mick. When I read the response from this committee that sat for more than a month and listened to all these different inputs from different community groups and so on, I got so outraged. When they said, and this was just one line where they totally dismissed the entire argument that we shouldn't build more infrastructure that pollutes the atmosphere because it causes the planet to heat and extreme weather events, etc., etc. They wrote one line which just said, it's not up to this committee to have any opinion about the climate aspects of this gas project. And it's like, what? This was what we were talking about, all of us. Talk about bunkers, wasting so much taxpayer money on such a long process. And everyone's talking about the climate aspect of this gas hub. And then they just, with one line, say, no, that's not within the range of or the scope of this committee's work. Can we just name this um, uh, as the bonkers episode of the second it's a clubhouse leader at the moment, Colin. For, for <laughs> Lisa, Lisa from Ocean. 
I just wanted to add to that uh, for the environmental plan for this massive seismic blasting in the Otway Basin. Uh, any we had um, we had over thirty thousand submissions from Australians, so that was pretty fantastic. But any submission that mentioned climate and looked the same as the situation with the gas in in Geelong. Uh, they're only looking at that picture. Anybody who mentioned the climate overall, their their submission would be deemed irrelevant, which mm. is, yeah, bonkers. And that was our <laughs> submission. When you think we, we put in a submission on behalf of the Sustainable Hour and it was all about damage to the environment. So, in other words, they wouldn't have even considered it. Correct. Yeah, that's... Uh... A big reason why many people, more and more people are saying that our democracy has been stolen and we need the numbers to get it back. And that essentially that's all it is, is the number of people who are concerned don't sit on that concern but show it somehow, whether that's, yeah, just because quiet concern doesn't exist for politicians and other decision makers. And I guess one way to get counted is to go to the letitian.org site and send off either a, a letitian letter about the incinerator. That's if you, in, I mean, that's if you live anywhere in Victoria, that certainly should be your concern. But there's also every month a new letter that goes to all the parliamentarians, which is about calling for meetings with our local MPs, that each of us can send a letter to our MP and call for a meeting. And so that has been put in a system. And the good side effect of that is that the numbers are counted. This is very important. Because imagine if thousands and thousands and thousands of people began to use the letitian.org system, then they would all be counted. Another really exciting move, Mick, is that there's a group called the Satitian Foundation. Now, forget about Satitian. They're just they're good guys, right? They're champions of deliberative democracy. And they're holding a meeting and, and inviting all politicians, all federal politicians to come along and be informed about just what that means. And that's happening today and we'll follow up on that. And, yeah, I think it's important that our poli find out which politicians actually attended because they've all been invited and then ask them what are they going to do about it or maybe be a little bit more subtle than that or not. So we're, we're all closing in on this, all people who want a safer, more just, inclusive, peaceful and healthy future are closing in on this. The, the only, uh, I guess, the only avenue we've got is to approach our local members and that if they all get it from all these different sides, surely they're going to wake up to the fact that uh, yeah, what they're doing at the moment is is just... It's endangering all our futures. Like they've got this duty of care. It's bonkers. <laughs> I think we need to register bonkers.com.au. <laughs> this hour is quickly running out, and uh, I won't say what a great hour because really, it wasn't good to learn about all these terrible things and all the the madness that's going on in politics. However. A last word, first, maybe to Belinda and Helen from the Beyond Guest Network, the call to action. Helen? Yeah, so the call to action for everyone is is to really um, 
make it your business to know more about gas in Australia, what's happening with uh, conventional and non-conventional gas, um, you know, fracking, uh, you know, in around Australia. It, it, the scale is massive. It's frightening. Ask questions about what's going on at Middle Arm. Uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're getting such... Uh, information and misinformation and disinformation you know um from the gas industry the disinformation people who don't really understand or know are spreading misinformation uh and and you know really we we believe we're being gas gaslighted um you know when you know the truth and you get continually told by mps and the gas industry that uh you know what you see isn't what's happening it, it's it, it makes you go a little bit bonkers really um and i i just uh really encourage people to to make it your business to learn more so that you can then go to your mps and and tell them that you're not happy that you you want them to take more action to stop the gas subsidies and to stop um you know allowing more gas in in the country more gas projects it's 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 very dangerous my background is in journalism and uh, screenwriting and i spent a lot of my time thinking of ways how to make this complex topic of gas easily understood by everyday people and once you start talking about um technical topics such as carbon capture and storage um and you know, other things related to the gas industry. People's eyes start rolling back in their heads. You know, it's too hard because we're also used to used to one second news grabs where, you know, very complex things just have an instant answer. And, and you know, that's how the gas industry puts things, you know, very simple terms. But then we have to go to such efforts to prove how these are wrong. Um, uh, the Environment Centre in the Northern Territory have, has been doing a lot of work in this area. Um, and Kirsty Howie, who's his executive director there, has really worked very hard in getting freedom of information uh, in order to show that what's been done at Middle Arm has, has really been um, hidden and, and that, you know, being put as being a sustainable precinct is really not the case at all and that there's been so many changes to websites and all sorts of things to, to really confuse people. And I think that's what's happening in Australia. People are very confused because there's the thing of, gas is natural, you know, therefore it's supposed to be healthy and we all know that's not true. We know gas in homes uh, is very dangerous, particularly for children um, and, and the cases of asthma there. And we, and we know that pollution isn't good for all of us and we know that we're now in a, a stage where we're, we're having so many increasing disasters. So we have to act now and, and I, I urge everyone to get on board and and start becoming interested in what's what's happening right in your backyard. Hey Helen, I too have a background of journalism, and uh, I'm probably like you. I'm sure that you are as surprised and as aghast as I am that in 2023 journalists are writing uh, on the other pages that aren't taken by Harvey Norman, and most <laughs> of those are trying to sell gas stoves. Now, I wonder if Beyond Gas, your organisation, is putting pressure on Harvey Norman to say, stop advertising gas stove, promote 
electric stoves in the papers because there's more there's more ads for gas stoves than there are articles about climate change in our newspapers in 2023. You're absolutely right. And uh, it, it it is very, very scary. Uh, I think now that, you know, they're in the uh, suburbs, people are becoming more aware that, that is, it's a good thing to get off gas and, and there's been lots of um, work done to, to help people get off gas. But still, you know, there still needs a lot more work to be done. It, it's very, it's very scary. And, and you know, you, you know that it's all about money, the, you know, selling these gas appliances. Um, they're mostly made overseas. Other countries will take them. It's it's as simple as that. They, they're just, yeah, giving us the dross. Vanilla. Thanks, Mick. Um, yeah, with regard to the gas appliances, I think that given that Victoria has now banned uh, new gas connections in new developments, um, the, hopefully the, the market will see that as a signal that we, you know, we need to be getting off gas. But just as in raising the alarm generally, you know, years ago we were very concerned about the Adani coal mine and there's a bigger, more destructive climate bomb in the process, which is the Beetaloo Basin. Uh, there's a whole lot of gas there which um, companies want to extract and develop and governments are supportive of that, the federal government and the Northern Territory government. But the, the first and most important thing is that the traditional owners are absolutely against it. So I was at a conference last week, the Climate Action Networks Australia conference, and I heard from a member of one of the traditional owner families there, Ricky Dank, and she talked about that this issue keeps her and her grandmother awake at night because they are just so worried about the damage that's going to be done to their their country particularly with water you know very simply is that um fracking can damage the water table which means it can contaminate the water supply and so ricky said are we supposed to drink poisoned water is that what the government expects of us and that like why why is our government not listening to this you know in this time of a referendum in this time when we need it, urgently need a treaty, why is the government not listening to First Nations people? But then there's this other issue of water use. It's about per, there's, I think, more than 60 drill pads in plan for Beedaloo, and per drill pad per day, it's 1 million litres of water that are going to be used. And it's not only the usage, it's that water comes back out contaminated and often radioactive. And the, these companies don't have plans for how to treat or dispose of that water. So so then we're left with this pro environmental problem in the Northern Territory, which is becoming a sacrifice zone, and they're not being held responsible for it. The government just want the, to tick the box and cut the ribbons and get the money for, you know, for the next election campaign, but they're just not taking responsibility for the people who are living there now, but also for future generations. It's abs like, it's beyond bonkers. And and we talked last week with Dr. Louise Woodworth. She's a pediatrician from Darwin, and she really talked about the people of the Northern Territory being sacrificed because it becomes, you know, the, the, the aspect of climate is that it warms to the level where people cannot live in the Northern Territory anymore. And where will these people go? Here's what Louise Woodworth told us. Why are the Northern Territory people being sacrificed for the sake of fossil fuel company profits, particularly in the midst of a climate crisis? There is no 
safe way to frack the Beedaloo Basin and certainly no safe way to process any more gas in the midst of a climate crisis. Up here in the Northern Territory, we need the help of everyone in Australia to come together and tell the federal government that this is not okay. We need to deal with the climate crisis urgently and we need to stop the middle arm project and Beedaloo fracking if we are to have any hope of addressing climate change and if we are to protect the people of the Northern Territory from the known health impacts of these dangerous projects. The really beyond bonkers thing is that all of us are impacted. Like we all share the atmosphere. It doesn't stop. Like if there's carbon that goes up from the territory, it doesn't stop at the border. Like it, it'll flow freely below the Murray. We're all impacted by it. Like any fossil fuel project that's given permission anywhere impacts on every single person on the planet. And, yeah, we've got to get people believing in that and saying, I've got a right to defend that. You know, it's all about jobs and growth and that Australia is becoming the dumping ground for petrol cars, big ram diesel cars, um, gas stoves and, and these big seismic ships. They're stopping seismic blasting everywhere else around the planet, so they're all coming over to us suckers in Australia. We're mugs who've allowed our politicians mugs. to be mugs is a much better word. fossil fuel industry. Look, I fully endorse uh, copywriting beyondbonkers.com. I think we need to get onto that. Yes. Um, if you ever need to rebrand, you can always call this the bonkers hour. Um, but, yeah, I guess, you know, it, it's the doom and gloom are all these, like, just, yeah, bonkers projects that keep getting proposed. But... I guess the light on the hill is all the people that we've heard from in this hour um, and all the other shows that you guys put together, that there's a lot of people putting a lot of hours into a lot of campaigns to push back on all of these things. And, you know, I think that's the inspiring part. That's what gets me out of bed and I'm sure a lot of us feel the same. Um, we, we just We just need more of us doing it so hopefully that's the take-home message from this show exactly the take-home message in my opinion is we need to be the difference but we also need to be counted and not be bonkers <laughs> be the difference be the difference be the difference i know the world's gone mad it's truth be the difference Many people say that Sweden is just a small country and it doesn't matter what we do. But I've learned that you are never too small to make a difference. And if a few children can get headlines all over the world just by not going to school, then imagine what we could all do together if we really wanted to. Be the 